0: Good morning. Titus three. As I come over to steal Tom's stool here, because I'm not going to hold my water the entire sermon. I first church which I worked was one with a pulpit that had been there for years and years, and uh, the pastor under under whom I uh, grew up, was, was the founding pastor of that church back in 1955. So he'd been the only one to preach out of that pulpit all those years. And the shelf underneath was warped because of all the cups of water he'd put down there and spilled over the course of the years. So I'm glad see-through here and put that there. and It has nothing to do with anything. I'm just just killing time, just talking to you. Titus chapter 3, we're looking at verses 1 through 7, as we start to bring the plane in for a landing here in the book of Titus. Titus 3, beginning in verse 1, going down to verse 7. Hear God's word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us Well, it's always important to know and to understand the context of any given situation. So uh, consider the person standing in front of you with a knife. Uh, If it's in an alley, uh, he's probably there to harm you. But if it's in an operating room, he's more than likely there to help you. Or consider the fire burning inside of a neighbor's front window. If the flames are filling the room, then the fire is probably destroying the house. But if the flames are filling the fireplace, then it's warming those who are in the house. Well, in that same way, it's always important to know and understand the context of a Bible passage. At Parbar westward, four at the causeway, and two at Parbar, sounds like I don't know what it sounds like. It makes about as much sense as a crying baby until you know the context and you understand that it's included in a larger set of directions for the care of God's Old Testament temple, 1 Chronicles 26, 18. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Sounds like something written by Tolkien or or Rowling. Until you know the context and understand that it's an apocalyptic expression of Satan's failure to foil God's plans through his people, Revelation 12, 16. So when it comes to understanding the Bible, context is king. And if we see and understand the context of today's passage, then uh, it will be life-giving. But if we fail to see the context and understand it, then uh, we'll quickly find it to be life-draining. So to set this life-giving passage in context, I want to point out three things. The first thing is that Titus is a book full of purpose. It's full of purpose. In each chapter, there is a connection between uh, what Paul is writing and why Paul is writing it. Uh, Kip pointed this out in detail a a couple of weeks ago to us. Uh, This letter is is not intended for uh, doctrinal yes-men or uh, spiritual Stepford wives, if you will. No, No, Paul doesn't write, stick to the word, teach what is good, renounce ungodliness, and then expect Titus to blindly obey. No, rather he writes, stick to the word so that Your doctrine remains sound and useful. Teach what is good so that the word is upheld and your opponents are put down. Uh, Renounce ungodliness so that you live godly lives. Again, Kip was clear to point out a couple of weeks ago that those uh, two little words, so that, are littered throughout this letter, keeping it from being an exhortation uh, to faith with eyes shut tight as opposed to an exhortation to faith with eyes wide open. So in a world like ours, which is a lot like first century Crete, where purpose rises and falls on the vicissitudes of our appetites, our emotions, our interests, our health, Paul writes a purposeful appeal that is rooted in God's word and intended to give us life. So that's the first thing that sets our passage in context, the purpose that fills this book. Uh, The second uh, thing is that this book is filled with hope, filled with hope. Now in in the past, Eric Tannis has pointed out the folly, at least for a Christian, of uh, having a bucket list. You know, the the things that you want to do before you die, because once you die, you can't do them. But a bucket list is based on a hopeless future. Gratefully, each chapter of this letter, each chapter of Paul's letter to Titus, reminds Christians of our great hope. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 2, the hope of eternal life promised by God before the ages began. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, the blessed hope for which God's people currently wait. Chapter three, verse seven: the hope of eternal life that makes us heirs to a better life than the one that we're currently living. So Titus is a hopeful letter, and if we need anything today, we need hope. And theologian Peter Jensen understood that very well, as expressed in a little systematic theology he published back in two thousand three. Now, uh, a systematic theology is a work that summarizes Bible doctrine in uh, in an orderly fashion. And it uh, usually begins with the doctrine of God and then spells out about uh, seven or ten more doctrines and then concludes with the doctrine of the end times. But Jensen began his systematic theology with a doctrine of the end times. And, and his rationale for having done so is crystal clear. Uh, he basically says, if there's no future, there's no hope. Ergo, don't waste your time reading this book. But there is hope. And, and Paul makes that clear. We, we needn't despair. It's the hope that comforts me. It comforts me when I miss my late father and my late brother since I know that one day I will see them again. It's the comfort that steals me and which I need to rely on more and more as, of, as often as I go to visit my, my uh, dementia-impaired mother since I know that one day she will regain everything that she's lost. So where do you currently live? Do you live in hope? Or do you live in despair? No matter where you live, I can guarantee you this, things are going to get better. In fact, they're going to get a lot better, better than all you ask or think, according to Ephesians 3.20, because the God of the Bible is a God of hope. Listen to his word from Isaiah 46. I am God, and there is no other I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. So that's the second thing that sets our passage in context this morning, the hope that fills this entire book. The third thing is that this book is a book of grace. It's full of grace. In fact, it's grace that makes hope possible. Grace that looks backwards to Christ's first appearing, chapter 2, verse 12. Kenny talked about that last week, giving us hope in this life. And then grace that looks forward to Christ's second appearing, chapter 2, verse 13, giving us the hope of eternal life, chapter 3, Verse 7, so from beginning to end, the Christian life is all of grace. In fact, grace is what makes one a Christian. It's not faith that makes you a Christian. It's grace that makes you a Christian. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of of God Ephesians 2.8 and thankfully there's no sin that's so great that grace cannot bear it up yea even eliminate it so those of you who think otherwise who resonate with David my transgressions are ever before me my 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 sin I know Psalm 31.3 well Charles Spurgeon has some very encouraging words for you listen to these the bridge of grace will bear your weight, brother. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge. Yea, tens of thousands have gone over it. Some have even been the chief of sinners, and some have come at the very last of their days. But the arch never yielded beneath their weight. That's good news. So for Christians, grace is everything. It's our sight, it's our breath, it's our nourishment, it's our strength, it's the substance of all that we take in, and it is the motivation behind all that we give out. That's why last week Paul explained to Titus that it's grace which is training us, grace which is motivating us to renounce ungodliness and to live in godliness. So the emphasis last week was on on ourselves, on our person. Well, this week, the emphasis is on others. And here come the three points for our sermon this morning. Paul wants Titus first to remind believers of what they should be. Remind believers of what they should be. We see that in verses 1 and 2. Second, uh, to remind himself what, what he, Titus, and, and the Cretan church in particular, once were. We see that in verse number 3. And then third, Paul wants Titus to exalt the purpose and the hope and the grace of God, which keeps these reminders that need to be offered here from becoming cold and static. So this morning's title really sums up the thrust of our text for today, Reminders of Grace, to which I would also add purpose and hope, since they're going to come together at the end of of our text in a beautiful way uh, to bring it all home. Now, the need to be reminded of these things is great. I mean, you can tell that by looking at the very first word of uh, chapter 3. Remind. Remind. And the reason that we need to be reminded, the, 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 the reason God's people need to be reminded of these things is because we are chronic forgetters of God. As well as his purposes and his hope and his grace. Now, here's the irony. You would think that God, who, who owes us nothing, I mean, as a psalmist put it, what is man that you're mindful of him? You, you, you would think that God, who owes us nothing, would forget about us, while we, who owe him everything, would easily remember him. But it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. Strangely, it's God who unfailingly remembers his people, and it's his people who regularly forget about him. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was very fascinated with this, and I took a closer look at it from the pages of Scripture. To begin, I looked at the God who remembers, and, and this is what I found. He expressly remembers individuals. Individual persons like Noah and Abraham and Rachel and Jacob and all of our forefathers in the faith. And he expressly remembers his people by way of the covenants that he made with them. Covenant with Noah, with Abraham and Isaac, with Israel. And he remembered that that all of those uh, covenants uh, were forever. Then I looked at God's command that his people remember him. In order that, he issued himself in Exodus 3 and issued again and again and again down through time by way of Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and Isaiah. And I got all kinds of passages here, handfuls and handfuls of them to substantiate all that I'm saying. And finally, I looked at the fact that that even though God remembered his people and commanded that they remember him, God's people regularly forgot him. This one by whom they were made, this one by whom they were saved, they forgot him. And we see this throughout the Old Testament books of the law, books of poetry, the minor and the major prophets. We see it in the New Testament here by way of Paul's instruction to Titus. I mean, why else would he tell Titus to remind the Cretan church of these things unless, in fact, they too were great forgetters? And we see it in our own lives by way of our chronic forgetfulness of God is fueled by a strong fixation on ourselves. A fixation that was especially impressed upon me the other night uh, when our family went to the Hollywood Bowl. From, or rather, where from the time we arrived to the time we left that night, the woman in front of us was either taking or looking at photos of herself. And I mean the whole time. I mean, she was seated right next to, I, I presume, her husband. Uh, she's surrounded by, by the beauty and the grandeur of the Hollywood Bowl. But instead of talking to him or enjoying her setting or the summer evening, I mean, all she did was snap and edit and gaze at and post selfies. And a former iteration of me would have easily lean forward and at some point just said you know what go go back three swipe back three i think that's a better picture than the one that paul gustav could attest to that and you know what i was incredulous i one of my daughters i kept kept giving her that look at, look at this lady but you know what I began reflecting on that later, and I realized, that's me. That's me, instead of looking to God and responding to what He wants for my life. No, my my strong tendency is to always be looking at myself and what I want for my life. So I, I need to be reminded, you need to be reminded to take our eyes off of ourselves, Off of our agenda and put them on to God. Well, what's the first thing which Titus wants, uh, or Paul wants Titus to remind the Cretan Christians? Well, Paul wants him to remind them of what they should be, and that is, as already mentioned, others focused. You see that in terms of what they do in verse number one, in terms of what they say in verse number two and in terms of how they act. And it's helpful to understand that everything done there in verse number one, the submissiveness, the obedience, uh, the good works, are tied to one's relationship with uh, rulers and authorities. So grace-motivated submission to those above us, including civil government, is our first duty in this passage. That means a Christian's obedience to government is not based on the uh, political platform of the party to which you adhere. No, rather it's based on the word of God and that with a grace saturated spirit that is seen in what we post on social media, is heard in classroom discussion, and is apparent over the proverbial water cooler and back fence conversations. That we have. Now, this grace motivated obedience is not only directed toward institutions but individuals as well. Notice there in verse 2 Titus is to remind the Cretans to mind their speech, specifically speaking evil of no one. Now, notice that Paul's not saying never be honest, rather, he is saying restrain from stating the worst about a person. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 22, Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Accentuate this point, but uh, I love what Peter says. In fact, it's worth uh, repeating here. First, by citing the example of Jesus himself. Peter writes, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. 1 Peter two twenty-three, And then offering an alternative to evil speaking. So he writes in 1 Peter 3, 9, Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Also, Titus is to specifically remind the Cretans to avoid quarreling. In fact, uh, to avoid quarreling and be gentle are actually grammatically linked to each other. What's interesting about that is that uh, the the opposite of avoiding quarreling uh, then is not biting your tongue. The opposite of to avoid quarreling is not silence, but rather gentleness. And I found that to be true. Time and again when meeting with persons who for one reason or another have taken issue with something I've said or, or something I've, I've done. I found this especially true of, of students when I was a, a college chaplain. And I remember one fellow in particular, he came into my office and he sat down and he immediately began to speak and he kept on speaking and he kept on speaking for 20 straight minutes. I don't think he took a breath. And the reason is because I imagine he thought once he did... I would either dig in and resist what, whatever he happened to be saying, or I would attack him. I think that's what most people feel like, think, in a situation like that. But, you know, when I don't, and I've, I've, I've seen this many times over, when I avoid quarreling, when I employ gentleness, it neutralizes the situation. Truly. Truly. A soft answer turns away wrath, Proverbs 15.1. And a soft tongue will break a bone, Proverbs 25.15. Well, Paul concludes uh, verse 2 by telling Titus to remind the Cretans to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Literally, all gentleness to all people. And I, I would go so far as to say that this is something that only a Christian can do. I mean, this isn't to say that that non-Christians can't be courteous. It's just hard to be that way over the long haul, over the course of life. In fact, one can even speak truth but lack courtesy and render it weak or or powerless. That's certainly the way I feel when I when I hear a a certain person speak on TV, and I think to myself, I agree 150% with what's being said but the way in which it's being said makes me want to raise my hands and back away slowly in in all of this notice that that some of the characteristics are the opposite of those found in the garden variety Cretans, uh, as described by one of their own prophets back in chapter 1 verse 12 so instead of being lazy gluttons Titus is to remind them that in Christ, they are to be ready for every good work. Instead of being evil beasts, Titus is to remind them to speak evil of no one. Instead of being liars and submitting to their own authority, Titus is to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, to be sure, while these uh, characteristics are not anti-cultural they are certainly counter-cultural. Recent months I've had conversations with two different Christians, two different kinds of persons. One is a person who's in the entertainment industry. The other person is one who works in retail sales. So one lives amidst the glitz, and the other one is, uh, is an uh, hourly uh, grunt, if you will. But despite their different Stations in life, our conversations have ended in the same place. And it's essentially been here. Grace-motivated obedience to treat all people according to the word of God. That, That is to say, just being a Christian can make others sit up and take notice so that when the gospel is proclaimed, they're ready to listen. Both of these persons have found that to be the case. So first... Paul wants Titus to remind Cretan believers of what they uh, should be. That's verses 1 and 2. And second, he wants Titus to remind himself, as well as the Cretan church, of what they had been. And you see it there in verse number 3. They've been foolish and disobedient and deceived by sin and sinners. Enslaved to various passions and pleasures. Dispensers of malice and envy. And they had traded in hatred. In other words, they were no better than the ones to whom they were speaking. And when it comes to God's word, remembering where we come from helps. Helps give us perspective. It helps give us compassion, especially in the light of what Paul is doing here. What's he doing? Well, Paul's making a comparison. Take a look at verse 3. He's making a comparison between the darkness of verse 3 we were once, and then all of that, and the brightness of verse 4. Take a look there. But when God. So while Titus was to remind himself of what he and the Cretan church had been, he was also to do this by exalting the purpose and the hope and the grace of God in their lives and that's verses four through seven because notice in verse number five he saved us not because of works done by us and that's a statement that's rendered emphatically by Paul in fact I imagine he put his pen down and hit the desk just to emphasize it to himself that's how strong it is He saved us not by works done by us, rather he saved us, beginning in verse 4, by his goodness and his loving kindness and his mercy. That is to say, it's all of Christ. And that's why everything that we sing here, everything that we we say from this pulpit, everything that we do, all our ministries at grace, point at Jesus. Jesus. I mean, that's one of the things with which I've been very impressed over the three and a half years I've worked here. He is at the center of the target. He's the bullseye. And it's applied, all of this, by way of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Take a look at verse 5. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And when I say, or when he says, poured out, it's like in waterfall proportions, or, or, or like we were saying earlier, like a flood. Now the beauty of that pouring was not lost on any of the Jewish readers of this book because it signaled a, a dramatic reversal in God's treatment of his people. You see, the outpouring of God once referred to his wrath, his great wrath upon sin. But now the outpouring refers to blessing. This is spoken of in detail by the the prophet Ezekiel and then by Isaiah and Zechariah and most famously by Joel. Why did God lavishly pour himself out in this way? Well, and here we go, beginning in verse uh, number seven, for the purpose so that, there are those two words, so that for the purpose that we might become his heirs and thereby have hope the hope of eternal life all of which is by his grace this is what gives us life this is what gives life to our words now if these were merely bare reminders of of moral duties and obligations they would be of little value and really at the end of the day impossible to attain but they're words that are pulsating with life. And they're words that infuse us with life, now and forever. So the question is, why do we need to be reminded of them? Why are we not regularly declaring these words? Francis Jonazak loved Poland. He was born and raised in Poland. He was married there and reared two boys. He was a professional soldier in the Polish army. Gijoniszek loved his country so much that um, he took part in the resistance that tried to keep the Nazis from uh, taking over Poland on the eve of World War II. And uh, as Dave Peters could tell you, that resistance failed and uh, Gajonizak was imprisoned at Auschwitz. Uh, Auschwitz was horrible. Uh, When I was in college, I visited Dachau, a prison camp in Germany. Uh, Later, in my 40s, I visited Auschwitz. Uh, I, I don't wanna say Dachau was a playground, but Auschwitz was just a massive death factory. In fact, after first service, I talked to a couple who had uh, witnessed uh, some of the rooms, one room in particular, about which I'm gonna speak here in a moment. It's just horrid. So uh, there was a time at Auschwitz when uh, for every missing prisoner, 10 were executed. One day in 1941, uh, a camp prisoner appeared to have escaped and so the uh, assistant commandant ordered 10 prisoners to die of starvation. Gajonazak was one of the ten men sentenced to die. And upon hearing his fate, all he could do was cry out, my poor wife, my poor children, what will they do? Hearing Gajonazak's pathetic plea, a fellow prisoner and a priest by the name of Maximilian Kolb stepped forward and offered to take Gajonazak's place. It's an unusual request so it had to be processed. But the request was accepted. And so Kold, along with the other nine men, was sent to a cell where he, instead of Francis Gajonazak, died on August 14th, 1941. Gajonazak later said of that, that as long as he had breath in his lungs, he would consider it his duty to tell people about the love of Maximilian Kolb. And he did. For the next 54 years, until he died at the age of 93. Now, does it come as a surprise that Gajonczak would do that? You know, declare the gift of life. An extra half century, and then some. Of life that was purchased by another man, Maximilian Kolb, on his behalf? Of course not. But you and I would do the very same thing. And we can do the same thing by declaring the news of a far greater gift of life, eternal life that was purchased by Christ on our behalf. A gift that should make us. Grateful to remind others as well as ourselves of the, not the life draining uh, uh, gift, but, but a gift, a life filled with purpose and hope and grace, life that compels us to sing. Come, you needy, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify. Without money, without money, come to Jesus and buy. And so we must. Let us pray. Lord, we marvel at our own hardness of heart. This beautiful gift, this gracious gift that we forget. And we fail to declare to others we marvel and we ask that you would break through the hardness of our own hearts, that we would taste and see again that you are good, that we would share that goodness and that life with others. Lord, I pray for those who are uh, trapped in disobedience and uh, various uh, uh, passions and, and, and practices and uh, all, all sorts of things that keep them from enjoying that kind of life. Lord, uh, bless them with your grace by faith and help them to see that it's not anything that they have done. Even now, Lord, I pray you would be welcoming some in this room into relationship with yourself. Lord, may we walk out of here with our perspective sharpened, our compassion deepened, and our appreciation for you heightened because of your great gift in Christ, which is ours now throughout this life and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.